0: time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee.
1: Today's broadcast is pre-recorded. Growing up in Jesus, Almighty God, I want to grow up in you. I'm not a child anymore. I'm a man. And I ask as we share this time, your Holy Spirit will come and show us how to grow up. Thank you. I pray in your holy name. Amen. Jesus came as a baby. But as he grew up, he was not a normal baby. He didn't do the things that normal babies do. He didn't have a spirit in him of rebellion. He didn't have a spirit of bitterness and anger. So as Jesus grew, he was different. He had brothers and sisters. They mistreated him. He did not in turn mistreat them. Jesus was fully man. And he was fully God. But he did not have a sin nature like you and I have. He had a nature like Adam and Eve's before they fell. So Jesus did not come in bondage to sin. He came righteous and holy before God. But he did come as a baby. So he had to grow up. He had to mature. Jesus came with the infirmities that all the human race had. So while he did not sin, he had to mature. He was not an adult in a baby's body. His mind was not developed. He had to grow and mature as all of us have had to. And in that growing and maturing, he did not sin against the Most High. He did not walk in rebellion. We find in the book of Hebrews, in the fifth chapter, I'll begin with verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. In other words, Jesus did not want to die. He was a human person. But as he cried out to the Lord, God of heaven, about not wanting to die, it says his prayers were heard. But what I want you to see that even though his prayers were heard, he still went to the cross. In other words, we would say his prayer was not answered, but his prayer was answered, because it was the will of God that Jesus go to the cross. That's what the whole struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane was about. Hours of agonizing, heart-rending struggle, because Jesus, God, did not want to do what God wanted him to do. But he submitted. Jesus learned to deal with conflict with the Father in the prayer closet. If you're simply going through your life, and you allow your heart to be filled with bitterness and anger, you have no need to go in the prayer closet. The reason we go to the prayer closet is to battle out what is rising up in our heart, sometimes naturally, not of sin, but just what rises up out of the desire of the human heart to survive, to live, because God placed that in us. We go in the prayer closet to deal with reality. to deal with what's happening in our soul. Unburden our heart to God as to a friend, to share the inside secret part of our soul with our Lord. But we're heard not when we get what we want. We're heard when we are able to submit to God. The greatest answer to any prayer Thy will, not my will, be done. That's the point of the prayer closet. Not to get what I want, but to get what God wants. Now that takes some time to sort through. Because, of course, all of us think that God should want what we want. Isn't he the vending machine? Put your quarter in and get your candy bar out. God is not a vending machine. And he has a plan. And it's for you and for me to come into submission to what God's plan is. Have you ever seen a a child being led by a parent out of a bookstore like Borders or a grocery store? And the baby is screaming as loud as it can scream. It does not want to go. It wants the candy back in the aisle in the grocery store. Or it wants the book. And the baby is yelling and screaming. And mama is dragging baby. And finally, in embarrassment, scoops the child up. And with the child beating on her with its little fists, mama red faced heads for the car. Pretty good picture of how it works with God, isn't it? Submission is one of the first acts of a person who begins to mature and grow up. To lay our rebellion aside, to lay our tears and our fists aside, And to begin to submit and say, Lord, your will, not my will. That's the first step of growing up in Jesus. He was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect. Perfect. That is, once made mature, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Do you want to be used by God for the kingdom of heaven? Then the first step is to submit to God. While through the pounding process and the discipline process and the high-stress goading process, we lift our hands up to Jesus and say, Your will, not my will. And it's okay if I lose my life in this. I'm not going to give way to rebellion or fear. I'm going to walk before you, God, and I'm going to submit to you. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. I'm not going to cover Melchizedek today. There's another sermon where I went in depth in that topic. But what I do want to look at is verse 11. We have much to say about this. What is this? The priesthood of Jesus. But it's hard to explain because you're slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted or is inexperienced, literally in the Greek, or is ignorant about the teachings of righteousness. Dikasune, to be made righteous. But solid food is for the mature who, by their constant use, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. And then he says, therefore, let's leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. So the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, look, I have so much I want to share with you. But if you're not ready to hear what I want to share with you, it won't make any difference in your life. And what makes it possible for you to hear is that you're willing to grow up. You're willing to grow up in Jesus. When you think about yourself, if I were to ask each of you to take a piece of paper and a pencil and just write a description for me of who you are, what would your description say about you? And if I were able to read that description in front of the congregation and ask the question is this description the description of a child? or of a man or woman, would you be able to ascertain the difference? Of course you would. Because a child thinks like a child. A child acts like a child. They're supposed to. That's how they are. That's who they are. Well, how does a child think? Now, I'm going to get in trouble here because at least with my two daughters, maybe it's not that way with your kids, but with my two daughters, it always seemed like they were infants going on 30. They could come up with some of the most wonderful statements that would absolutely astound me. And I would say, where did that come from? But by and large, as they were together, one with another, there was always the question, who will be the greatest between us? Who's going to get the biggest cookie? That always seemed to be the issue. Who's going to get the biggest piece of pie as dad begins to cut the pie? Dad, that's not fair. You cut April's bigger than mine. Okay, let me give you April's and and April you... I don't want hers. I want the big piece. I mean, there are certain things that are just endemic to children. They have this awesome sense of fairness. But usually it is fairness for them getting the best. I have seldom seen a child concerned about fairness if it means they lose something and somebody else gets something. So when we begin to talk about who we are, it's really important that we're able to identify what an adult, what a grown-up in Jesus looks like. And that's why the first step of being grown-up is that I submit myself. I no longer want to be the greatest or the best. I no longer push for my big slice of the pie. I'm willing to give up for another. I'm willing to sacrifice for another. Amazing to me now to to be with Heidi. I took her to dinner last night. And for dessert, we shared a dessert. And it was this uh, molten chocolate cake with a scoop of ice cream. And I was wanting to see what Heidi would do with this. So we each took our first bite, second bite, third bite, And now there was one nice big bite left. I said, I'm going to have some fun. So I took a small bite and said, Heidi, the rest is yours. No, dad. You get the big bite. I'll take the small one. Wow, she grew up. And not only that, left on the plate was one gorgeous cherry. And I said, well, then you take the cherry. She responded, no, dad. I know you love cherries, that's for you. I said nope, won't eat it. Well, then, Dad, it's going to stay on the plate and go back and be thrown away. There was no bend. Dad, I'm here for you. It brought tears to my eyes. My daughter grew up. She's now a woman. No doubt, the husband and the three children helped grow her up. Because now she's a mama. And she understands what self-sacrifice is. How can you be a mother and not understand self-sacrifice? That's the whole description of the job. I sometimes warn women before they get married. Don't plan on getting married unless you're willing to die. You're not going to go into this marriage and be 50-50. In the home, most of the sacrifice will be yours. And he'll sacrifice going out in the workplace. And then if you decide to join him and you both go to the workplace, you'll still end up carrying most of it at home. Now, that's not fair. I'm a man, I know. It's not fair. But it's reality. It's that self-sacrificing love that is so amazing that so pleases Jesus Now, here comes another issue for growing up. I took a test when I was just a little boy in school, a history test, and I'd not studied for it. And it was a self grade test. And so I got the first one wrong. Got the second one wrong. I said, I might as well just get them all wrong. So I marked them all wrong, even though many of them were right. Teacher took the test and the next day he came back and he said, Raymond, why'd you cheat? I didn't cheat. Yes, you did. You marked questions wrong that were right. Why'd you do that? Grow up, Raymond. Now, let me tell you how we do that with Jesus. We begin to fall under some conviction of sin. And we say, I wonder if I was ever born again. We'd rather get them all wrong. So we can now feel sorry for ourselves. There comes a time when we have to face reality, and that's a sign of growing up. Where we look at reality and say, I messed up here, but this is where I stand, and I'm not going to be moved, and at as a teacher of the gospel, I have to tell you, when a man or woman is born again, they are given authority and power in the name of Jesus to live a righteous life. But then sin will rise up in their heart and tempt them. It's more than temptation, however. It's an inclination of their soul to walk in lust or darkness or dishonesty, or stealing. There is an inclination of the heart that rises up. And when that happens, if we say, oh, I guess I was never born again. I'm just, I'm just a failure. I can never make it. All is lost. That's childishness. The reality is there has to be a second work of grace in our hearts that removes even the inclination or the desire to sin. But that doesn't mean that we were not born again and filled with the Spirit of God and made righteous before Him. As a child, when I failed at something, I wanted to fail so badly that nobody'd have any question about it. They'd know how bad I was and they might feel sorry for me. Growing up means I don't need people to feel sorry for me anymore. I'm going to submit to Jesus regardless of the cost. Then I'm going to pick up the sword of the Spirit and I'm going to go to war. And that war is not with my brothers and sisters. That war is an inner struggle to deal with the wickedness that wants to rise up in my heart and destroy my walk with Jesus. And the concern of the Apostle Paul in the book to the Thessalonians was God wants to sanctify you through and through. He wants to do a finished work of grace in your life. But that requires struggling in the prayer closet with the reality of my sin and dealing honestly with it and not being unconscious, but being very conscious of my condition and allowing God to bring discipline into my heart and into my life with money, with bosses, with family members, with whoever he needs to bring that discipline with, so that there is sufficiently causing unrest in my soul, that I'll go in the prayer closet, I'll get on my face before God, and I'll get the matter settled. I'm not going to allow it to continue to control me. I'm not going to be a child. I am a man. If I were to write a description of myself, it might go something like this. I'm a man of God. I am given over to Jesus Christ. I desire more than anything else to be used by him in the work of the kingdom. He's now in the process of washing and cleansing my life and growing me up so that I can be useful to my Lord. This is all I desire. That's what you would read if I wrote a description of myself. Because that's who I am. I'm not willing to go back again and question whether God did any work in my life. I'm not willing to walk under condemnation. I'm not willing to walk in. I'm so bad and life's so bad and I can't deal with this. I'm not willing to give way to feelings of depression and despair and discouragement because those are childish things. Those are not mature. Men and women don't do that. We come before the Lord with the strength and power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we honestly confess if we have failed. And we say, Lord, this is what I said and this is what I did. And I'm sorry and I repent of that. And by the power of the blood, I renounce it. Satan, I renounce you. I will serve only Jesus Christ. I belong to him. And I ask him then to give me the courage to submit in every way to Jesus Christ that there be nothing in my life or in my heart that would rise up in rebellion against my Lord. You see, it speaks here in Hebrews about men and women who have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. And literally, this is the description that is used for the Greeks as they prepared for the Olympics. And it means literally they stripped off all of their clothing. They were naked. And in their nakedness, they trained. Greek athletes were always naked. They trained. They wanted nothing to interfere with their training. They only had one object, and that was to conquer their foe and to be the best of the best, that they could receive the recognition as the winner Men and women who have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. We are not born knowing the difference between good and evil. That comes with practice. Now, I've learned certain things. Let's say this afternoon I decide. Okay, I did church. I've preached. There's an action movie I want to go see. I'm just going to go veg out. So I go over to the mall and I sit down in the theater to watch this hard action movie. Well, what's going to happen to me? I've been there. I've done that. I know that when I do it and I come home, my heart is going to be sick. I know that tomorrow I will not be able to get into the scriptures and focus because my mind will have been seared by the violence that I've witnessed. The images of that movie will keep replaying in my heart. And I will begin to identify with people and characters in that movie that are not who I am or who I want to be. You ever sat in a movie and the bad guy gets it and everybody cheers as his blood is being splattered. Would you have the courage to splatter somebody's blood like that? When you cheer that kind of event, it's the same as you're doing it. In terms of its impact on your spirit and your mind. Well, Guess what? I don't need to go this afternoon to a movie to to understand that. I don't need to go sin against God so that I'll understand what will happen in my soul. No, I've trained myself. I've experienced life. And I've said, I don't want that anymore. I know what lying will do to my spirit. I know what lust will do to my heart. I don't want to go there anymore. I know that I can go home to my computer and in a few clicks be on a pornographic page. You know what? I don't want to do that. Because I know what it will do to my heart and to my mind. I know what it will do to my relationships with precious ones. I don't want to go there. By training. By discipline, I've learned the difference between good and evil. And I've learned what evil costs me. And I don't want to pay that price anymore. That's part of growing up. So that I don't go do things and say things and act in ways that are unacceptable before God. Because the price is too heavy in my spirit if I do that. That's what the writer of the book of Hebrews is talking about. Men and women who, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ. And to go on to Maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. And of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment, and God permitting we will do so. He's saying, look, I don't want to talk anymore about repentance. I want to talk about the priesthood of Jesus. I want to talk about what Jesus is actually doing right now in heaven for you and for me. And I'll cheat. I want to just skip some material that we're going to come back to. But I want you to see what Jesus is doing right now in heaven. Even as we're here, what is Jesus doing right now? Hebrews, the seventh chapter, verse 25. If you don't have this underlined and marked in your Bible, underline it and mark it. It's Jesus' job description. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Now, as a child, I understood intercession to be a kindly old man praying in the closet. Guess what? That's not intercession. Intercession is when I see David getting beat up by somebody, and I step in between and say, that's enough, stop it. Leave him alone. Now, I've interceded in his life for his salvation, to protect him from the enemy. That's what intercession is. That's what Jesus is doing right now for you and for me. When the enemy comes to beat us up, if we're standing in a place with Jesus that He does not need to goad us and he doesn't need to bend us or prod us, prod us with a stick, if we're in a place where He knows it's for our good to deliver us, right now He steps in between and he says. Leave my servant alone. My servant is righteous before me. Leave him alone. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a little boy, I was proud that my dad was 6'3 and 250. Because when the neighbor boy came to beat me up, I said, you better leave me alone or my dad will beat your dad up. And his dad was a pipsqueak. Now that's raw, but that's real. We have a God in heaven, Jesus, whose only intent is to save his people. Any hardship that comes into your life comes with his permission. And he either brings it for a purpose to prod you into righteousness. Or, at your cry, he will intervene and he will say, enough, leave him alone. That's my son. That's my daughter. So Jesus lives to intercede for us, to step in, to defend or to vindicate us to furnish us with any kind of help or assistance that we may need. That's what intercession means. So get the picture. Jesus is in the command center in the heavenly throne room. I don't know if he has computer monitors all the way around, but some way he has the ability to keep Exact track of every move you make, both in thought, in word, and in action. He has counted the hairs on your head. He knows who you are. And he has only one purpose. And that is to apply his precious blood to your life, to intercede in your life in such a manner that the plan of salvation that he has outlined for you will be successful, that he can bring you through into his eternal kingdom, that you might serve him and be one with him throughout the ages. That's his plan. Now, I want you to notice one other part. Therefore, he is able to save completely. This is not a partial salvation that he is offering. This is entire sanctification. Even the inclination to do evil is removed, not the temptations. The temptations come from the evil one. God does not tempt us. He tests us, but he does not tempt us. Important difference. He's come to make us righteous. I woke up this morning and the first cry of my heart was, Oh God, make me righteous. Make me holy. You said you were able to save me completely. This day save me completely. Don't let my heart turn against you. Don't let my heart be given to foolishness. Let the word that I speak at church today be like a An acetylene torch, let it be blue flame, cutting through every deception that we might grow up in Jesus. That was my cry before the throne of God. And then, of course, I had to get to the part of the prayer that said, your will, not my will, be done. When we begin to grow up in Jesus. We find in Jesus a high priest who meets our needs. One who's holy, who's blameless, who's pure, who's set apart from sinners, who's exalted above the heavens. It's Jesus, the Almighty. Now he turns in verse 4. To a terrifying warning. This is Hebrews, the sixth chapter, verse four. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened. Who have tasted the heavenly gift. Who have shared in the Holy Spirit. Who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age if they fall away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss, they're crucifying the son of God all over again, subjecting him to public disgrace. I want to tell you that does not apply to any person who's in this church. It doesn't apply to you for several reasons. One None of us have experienced the fullness of the Holy Spirit. None of us have experienced the fullness of the grace of God. All of us are just beginners in this walk. He's saying that it's possible, however, for one to enter fully into the gospel of Jesus, to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit and his power. It is possible for that one to still turn away. That is the wickedness of our heart, and there can be no illusion about that. In other words, when we've grown up, we have nothing to be proud of. For it's Jesus who grew us up. And we are held by his grace and his mercy. There's nothing in this of you and me. The salvation I'm speaking of today comes from Jesus. He puts the righteousness in our hearts. He puts us on the shelf. He causes us to be prodded. He causes us to be stepped on. He causes us to be bent. He causes us to be mistreated at work. He does whatever is necessary. He takes our finances. He does whatever is necessary at that stage of our spiritual growth to move us forward in maturity, and then he comes back and sweeps in and is our full provision. So today, if you're walking through deep water, you're not going to drown because you're following Jesus. It will not always be like it is today. There's a new day coming in the fullness of the Spirit, in revival power. There is deliverance coming. But there's a growing up to happen first. There's a maturing in Jesus to happen first. There's a a laying aside of feeling sorry for ourselves. There's a laying aside of, of being spoiled and always wanting what we want. There's a hard edge that has to be broken off of us. There's an insanity, a moral insanity that has to be transformed by his blood. That we could be righteous before him. He says, Land that drinks in rain, often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. So all of us come before God in our immaturity. And now the question is, what will we do? How will we respond to the rain of God as it falls on our lives? Sometimes prodding us, sometimes poking us, sometimes disciplining in ways that are extremely painful. How will we respond to the rain of God that's falling on our lives? Will we lift our hands and say, Thy will, not my will? Will we submit? Or will we cast everything off and say, well, it's already bad. I might as well make it really bad. Will we grow up in Jesus? Walking holy before him. Now, some of you that I've spoken with are living in an illusionary world of a child. What do I mean? I won't do it. Please don't raise your hand. But it would be interesting to ask each of you who has issues you're trying to deal with to raise your hands. I suspect a number of you would raise your hands. I know that by talking with you individually. Did you know that you're not going to ever be successful in dealing with those issues? The work of the gospel is not a process of self-improvement. The only way you can deal with those issues in your life is to die. To cut them off in the name of Jesus and say, I have now resolved that issue by dying. I'm no longer going to be a part of it. I lay it in the grave. Today, if you will make a covenant with God to die to all of your issues, you'll leave this house at peace and at rest in Jesus Christ. Our peace is always disturbed by issues. I've had people come to me sometimes in this church and say, Pastor, I have some issues I need to talk with you about. Do you know what I say to them? I've said to some of you, why don't you go home and get in the prayer closet and talk to God about all your issues and when they're resolved, come talk to me. Because your issues are not with me. Your issues are with you and Jesus. And it's a question of whether or not you'll submit to what he wants to do in your life. I once had a lady come to me and she had a notebook and I counted she had over 51 issues that she wanted to talk with me about that she was mad with me over. I was absolutely astonished. I said, how could we walk in fellowship and you be so mad at me for so long? Go home and pray and then come talk to me. That was the last time I saw her. That was all right. I didn't want to deal with her 51 issues because they weren't my issues. Maturity means I lay down my issues and I die. I submit. I give them into Jesus' hands. And I stand by faith on the foundation of Jesus Christ. I don't discount my being born again. And I don't discount the power of the devil coming at me with every temptation, with an inclination in my heart to say yes to them. I don't discount that. I just die to it. And I give it to Jesus. And I say, I'm not going to go there. I mean, why should I give Sandy a piece of my mind? I need to save all the mind I have. I don't have enough mind to be going around giving peace of my mind to everybody I disagree with. I've been called by the Spirit not to go around giving people peace of my mind. I've been called in the Spirit to be a peacemaker. To walk in the shalom glory of God. To not have issues rising up in my heart that disturb my peace with Jesus. I'm called to grow up. And give up my childish ways. So today, would you join me? Would you take a stand that by faith I have been born again? And now by the power of the blood of Jesus, I renounce the devil. And I'm going to allow God to have his free way in my heart. I lay down all rebellion against him. I will walk pure and clean before him by the power of the spirit washed in his blood. If you'll take that vow with me. You're with me on the way of the cross. Growing up in Jesus. And the devil. Can't touch you. Because we have a Lord. Lord. Who intercedes for us. Almighty God. Grow me up Jesus. Grow us up Jesus. Stand us on our feet. Planted in righteousness and we will glorify your name thank you jesus amen
0: i walk with god from this day Helping hand, I lean upon this. Is my prayer. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel. Come visit us at nationalprayerchapel.com. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless. from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy.